undoubtedly include the talking head, would it not? From the moment the band first appeared on the New York concert scene in mid-1975, playing at CBGB on a bill headlined by the Ramones, it was clear that this band was charting a course all their own. From post-punk to funk, and with their own unique way of looking at the world through their songwriting, the band left behind a treasure trove of recognizable songs that we all love, from Psycho Killer to Once in a Lifetime to Burning Down the House, just to name a few. Their songs, records, and music have remained an influence on wave after wave of musicians and music lovers alike. Well, today we are in for a real treat because we are joined by the founder of the Talking Heads and 2002 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Mr. Chris France. Thank you. Chris founded the Talking Heads with his girlfriend at the time and now wife of 44 years, Tina Weymouth. <laughs> the core of the band included Chris on drums, Tina on bass, and lead singer David Byrne and keyboardist Jerry Harrison, who joined the, uh, the group in time to release their first album. His exceptional, exceptional memoir, Remain in Love is the story of the band, of his remarkable marriage to Tina, and their amazing life journey together as musical icons, not just with the Talking Heads, but how about that other seminal band that he formed shortly after, the Tom Tom Club. Chris is gonna be joined in conversation today by Steve DeConstanzo, the general manager at WPKN 89.5 on your FM dial, the greatest radio station in the state of Connecticut. <laughs> Steve's been the general manager there since 2013, and today's uh, interview and conversation is being simulcast on the radio. So how cool is that? So I'm gonna hand over the podium to uh, Steve and Chris, enjoy. Great, thank you. Thanks, thanks a lot. Uh, special thanks to Bill Harmer and Brandon Toller and Jennifer Bangser as well. And Dave Schwartz is doing the recording uh, up there and helping with some of the logistics. Um, I'm Steve DiCostanzo. I am I'm the general manager. Uh, WPKN is a non-profit, non-commercial community radio station. We've been broadcasting freeform music, public affairs, news, community talk for about 60 years. Uh, we produce concerts and films as well. Um, we are now based in downtown Bridgeport, and we broadcast uh, in the Connecticut counties of Fairfield, New Haven, Litchfield, as well as uh, Suffolk County in New York, the North Fork, and the uh, South Fork on Long Island. Uh, and this past summer, the New Yorker paid WPCAN a great tribute. That's uh, right. We, we have to like talk about this one. Uh, they wrote an article on the station and about our move to downtown Bridgeport. The headline was, WPKN, to be honest, is the greatest radio station in the world. Now, who am I to uh, you know, go against uh, the fact-checking prowess of uh, the New Yorker? So, uh, And we have a documentary film coming out under the same title, of course, this summer. Uh, now, it's a real privilege for me to be sitting here because uh, 
You know, I'm a huge fan, and obviously I, you are all huge fans as well. And I had a long intro as well, but I think Bill did it very nicely. Thank you, Bill, for saving a little time there. Uh, he's also one of our, our programmers, our volunteer programmers. That's right. He uh, does a show the last Friday of every month called Chris France, The Talking Head. So I would suggest and, and, and you know any of you could tune in, and uh, he does a great, great show. Um, what I'd like to do is, um, I had an intro with some of the, uh, but I, I will say a couple things because, so Talking Heads recorded eight studio albums, just to give some perspective here, eight studio albums, two live albums. They released 31 singles, multiple music videos. Uh, they were awarded the, uh, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. And then just last Sunday, officially got your Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. So I think we can have a, a round of applause. Uh, let's start off with um, the writing of your, your memoir, Remain in Love. I, I read it in hardcover when it first came out, loved it. Uh, ha have many of you read the book as well? Good, nice to see that. Uh, great storytelling, amazing attention to detail. I also just listened to it since I was doing this I, on, on, uh, as an audiobook, uh -huh. all 15 hours, which I, were thoroughly enjoyable, I have to say. Uh, thank you. Uh, I don't know if you kept notes along the way or journaled like some musicians have, uh, but I think it's a, probably a, a good way to start this to talk about the methodology. And uh, we asked for some questions from our programmers, Martha Willett Lewis, who you know at WPKN, she wanted to know if if you turned, if you did like, um, did did Chris turn a room into a murder board when writing the book? Now, murder boards are those giant crime scene collages, uh, notes, maps, and information uh, to help kind of sort out all the information. And if yes, was a lot of string involved? And if no, how, how did you do the research and organize and prepare and, and uh, you know, write the book? And also, did Tina ghostwrite any of it? <laughs> Tina was my editor, uh, not my official editor, but my sort of editor who edited before the other editor came in. And uh, she was also my fact checker. Mm. And uh, Tina was very supportive of me doing this book, and um, I'm gonna be very supportive of her doing her book also. Um, I, I, I went to an agent, my, I have a very nice manager, and he said, Chris, you've gotta get an agent. First step is you get an agent. So I said, okay, and he said, we're gonna start with ICM in New York, and I hit it off with this guy very well, Sloan Harris is his name. And when I, when I walked into his office, he had a giant painting by Dr. Seuss, like an oil mm. painting. He represents the Dr. Seuss estate. And um, this particular painting was the rape of the Sabine women as painted by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and I thought, I think I've come to the right place. Uh, and he said, he said to me, Chris, First thing you gotta do is an outline. Then you gotta do a precy. And then we wanna see three chapter 
lives. And I, so that's how I began. And I, I didn't have journals. Uh, my, my entire life, really, I've been saying, Chris, you should be keeping a journal. And I just never did because everything was, I mean, I knew the things that were happening to me were worthy of a journal, but I was just too excited and distracted most of the time to sit down and you know keep a diary. Fortunately, though, in the early days of Talking Heads, uh, Tina was our road manager. She collected the money at the end of the night, and and she made sure that we got our percentage if it was sold out and things like that. And uh, uh, she kept not not journals, but uh, those date books that she bought at the Muse Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, and she would write on each date the, the name of the venue, how many tickets were sold, whether it was a good gig or sometimes she wrote, never come back to this place again. <laughs> and um, uh, so, so that was able to, you know, from the touring days was able to spark memories mm. that um, I had. But I, I, I also seem to be just kind of blessed with a good memory knock on wood yeah. but uh when i was writing the book i was frankly shocked at how many i would call up old friends to sort of fact check my memories mm -hmm. and, and sometimes they would say i don't remember that at all <laughs> for example the the guy who introduced me to david byrne can't remember that mm -hmm. so so uh I'm glad my memory was good. Yeah, cool. I wrote the book in uh, over a period of 18 months in here in Connecticut, in the town of Fairfield, mm -hmm. and also in Brittany, in France, and finally in Nassau, in the Bahamas. Compass Point. At yeah. Compass Point, yes. Cool. So it was great to be in these locations and. Uh, like Compass Point and all the, those memories come flooding back. Yeah. Well, uh, in terms of fa fact-checking memories, uh, you know, there, there are some in incredible details. And uh, I, I want to also just start with your family life, growing up, uh, moved around a little bit, uh, military, family. Uh, what kind of youngster were you? Well, I, I think I was a pretty normal kid. Uh, I had a lot of curiosity. I like to explore things. I like to, you know, run around in the woods, which in those days you could do. Uh, the woods came in when we were living in Charlottesville, Virginia, for example, the woods came right up to our backyard and it was like ancient old forest, you know, with huge mm. trees and lots of snakes and turtles and stuff like that. So, uh, I played some little league baseball, you know. Yeah. Uh, I was a normal kid. What position did you play? I, second base. Okay. That's a very important position yeah. to play. And, and uh, from baseball, little league baseball, when did you start kind of gravitating or moving into some, you know, musical directions or art directions? Uh, was that a kind of a big part of your childhood too? Uh, yes. I, I, I went to public elementary school 
And in those days, uh, they had really good music programs, and I, I hope they still do around here, uh, really good music pro programs in the public schools. And I, I started off on trumpet, because I thought the trumpet was really cool, you know, and mm. uh, looked good and um, sounded good, but it, it didn't work out for me. Like I practiced, I put in the time and everything, but it just, I was not a very good trumpet player. No. And I had this really good music teacher in the fifth grade who said, you know, Chris, you've got a pretty good sense of rhythm. What do you say we switch you to the drums? Mm. Uh, maybe he just needed a drummer in the band, I'm not sure, <laughs> but he was a mallet instrument guy himself, and he also played drums, and I said, okay, because I didn't really care what I played, I just wanted to be in the, be in the band, right. you know, and um, I, I started practicing, he showed me the rudiments, you know, and slowly but surely I started to get it and right. get get pretty good mm. and um I, and, and we would do we would do concerts like indoors in the winter time and then in the summertime or rather the spring and fall we would have marching band which was to me very exciting yeah well you know you're, you're talking a lot about or a little bit about education and, and from the book you know reading reading the book uh and maybe many of you felt the same same thing. Uh, you had a really good education. You know, the schools that you attended, yeah. uh, you went to, uh, you mentioned public schools, but you also then went to uh, a, a school called Christ Church School, an Episcopal boys boarding school yeah. in Virginia. And also then you, in Pittsburgh, uh, a school called Shady Side Academy. And then of course, Rhode Island School of Design. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, <laughs> what I found, you know, you write um, kind of lovingly about some mentors that, yes. you know, really put you um, on certain tracks, especially you, you, you mentioned one of the mentors, uh, David Britton, who taught, uh, he was an English teacher and he taught a class called Adolescent Rebellion. Oh, I wish I had a class like that when I was uh, growing up. But could you talk a little bit about David Britton? And, and uh, there was also another gentleman, David, David Miller. We can kind of separate those if yeah. you like. Well, David Britton, as far as I know, is still teaching um, up in New England. He went to Middlebury College, so he was a really good skier and avid, you know, you know, he had a six pack, <laughs> a good looking guy, but also really smart, rode a motorcycle. You know, we naturally, we thought that was very cool, but he was, uh, he had a real incisive cutting wit and he, he used that as sort of like a tool to keep us in line in the classroom. We, we, you know, 16 year old boys at the time. And, um, yeah, the, the 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 class. This was this was it would have been like 1968, and the cl the class was called Adolescent Rebellion, and we read we read well. We started off with The Catcher in the Rye, and then we moved on to uh, James Baldwin, and we uh, we read 
one book that had a, a, a profound effect on me was called The Outsider by Colin Wilson. And uh, I highly recommend it. It, uh, later on, I thought, oh, that was good preparation for working with David Byrne. <laughs> um, and, and um, you know, it was a very, and we would have discussions mm -hmm. and uh, about these books. And uh, I, uh, one of the books was um, Summerhill, about the experimental uh, high school or. Uh, pre-university in, uh, I, th I think, Somerset, England. Anyway, it was in the UK, and it was completely a free-form education, mm, like right. what the kids decided what mm. they wanted to study. And I remember my dad reading like the, the just the blurb on the back of the book and saying, Christopher, what are you reading this for? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it was, it was mind-expanding. Mm. You know, this was the 60s, yeah. and it, that particular course was was really informative and really helped me and I think also my other classmates to see life beyond our our, our own kind of comfortable community. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and thank you. And back in Pittsburgh, then you you were at Shady Side Academy, and you had an art teacher that seemed to be yes. really uh, impactful, uh, David Miller. Uh, he also not only inspired you, but I think he, he kind of brought you towards on a path towards RISD. Yes, you know? guy named David Miller. He lives up uh, near uh, Albany. He, he taught at, uh, oh, what's, the, what's the woman's, it used to be a woman's, Saratoga. What's this? Skidmore. Yes, thank you. He taught at Skid painting at Skidmore mm. after he uh, left the the boys prep school right. I went to. And I went to visit him, and he's alive and well and painting beautifully, I must say. And he just kind of really turned me on. He, had, he taught a class called Studio Art, and uh, he he uh, just. He, he, he taught us about contemporary artists that I didn't know about at the time. I mean, I knew about Andy Warhol, but I didn't know about Lichtenstein and uh, Willem de Kooning and, um, you know, sure. all the great American mm -hmm. painters that, and European painters, but particularly American that were, that were contemporaries at the time. Robert Rauschenberg. I never heard of Robert Rauschenberg right. until I took that course. And, and, and uh, he kind of gave you a little bit of that push, uh, writing some very powerful he, letters of recommendation to Rhode Island yeah, School of Design. He, and and your, your father, I guess, was a little skeptical until... My, my mother was, was especially skeptical, yeah. and my father also. They, they, uh, well, David Miller said, Chris, I think you should go to the Rhode Island School of Design. I said, oh, I would love that. But I don't think my parents are going to go for that. And he said, I'll talk to your dad. Because he was, uh, my father was a commander, commanding officer at, of the U.S. Army Reserve. And David Miller was in the U.S. Army Reserve also. My father was his commanding officer. Interesting. So, wow. so we had a meeting. 
And he said, you know, Mr. and Mrs. France, I think, no, excuse me, Colonel and Mrs. France, I think, I think you, your son should go to the Rhode Island School of Design. I got three, three students in there last year, and I, I think Chris would qualify. And they were like, well, how will, how will he ever support himself? <laughs> and uh, uh, David Miller said, you'd be surprised. Artists find ways of supporting themselves. And um, uh, he said, you know, RISD, as they call it, is not only a fine art school, it's the Harvard of art schools. There we go. That, and my, that my, father, my father had gone to Harvard Law School, and so he was like, oh, it's the Harvard of, laws, of art schools. <laughs> and, and, and then he drove me up. We did the interview. We toured the school. I said, yeah, this is the place for me, Dad. And, and I ended up... <clears throat> Yeah. going there. Well, it seemed like it was the, the place for you because you wrote in your book that you were really excited to arrive at RISD and uh, you write a, a, a snappy synopsis uh, in one sentence. It says, art, girls, parties, fun, all with exclamation marks. So yeah. I guess that pretty much sums up your collegiate life, but <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to uh, here you talk a little bit about um, some of your college days in general, but also how you met your beautiful and talented wife. Sure. To be T Tina. Yeah. I, uh, well, you know, uh, when I first got to RISD, I thought, oh, am I going to be able to cut it? Because everybody in the school is like the best artist at, at their high school, you know, and the, these people are, I think everybody else was also thinking the same thing, all the other students. Uh, but I got along fine. And uh, the freshman year, everybody takes the same courses. It's known as the freshman foundation. It's drawing, two-dimensional design design, three-dimensional design, and art history. That's it. And everybody does the same thing. And uh, I particularly loved the figure drawing because I, I never worked with nude models before. We, we had a really great looking <laughs> woman model for one of my classes. She would, she would have this <laughs> this robe on, you know, and she'd walk out and stand on the pedestal and then just drop the robe. <laughs> and every young man and some of the women too in the class would be like, oh. <laughs> and, and so I particularly loved that aspect of, of the freshman year. Sophomore year came along and I, uh, I had chosen as my major painting and I uh, was sitting on what they call the, the RISD beach. It's like a grassy area in the center of the campus on the corner of Benefit and Waterman Street. And all the kids sit there in between classes and gossip and, you know, drink coffee or smoke pot, whatever. And I was sitting there speaking to a friend of mine and all of a sudden, I saw this girl coming down Benefit Street that I hadn't seen before. I should say young woman. Young woman riding on a yellow bicycle and she had blonde hair flowing in the wind and she was wearing a, a striped French boat neck shirt 
blue and white, cut off jeans. She just, I said, oh my God. And, and she looked like uh, something out of a, a French movie, a Truffaut movie perhaps. And I, I thought, oh, I've got to meet her. And I was sitting next to this big artist model named, everybody called him Charlie the model. And Charlie knew everybody. Uh, I said, Charlie, do you know her? And he said, oh yes, that's my friend Martina. And so I, I said, oh, I've got to meet her. And then the next day, the next day, I went to my first figure painting class with a, a great teacher named Richard Merkin, who you may have heard of. He did a lot of work, covers of the New Yorker, and he, he particularly liked to paint the, the famous people of the jazz age, singers, horn players, gangsters. Anyway, I was in Richard Merkin's painting class setting up my easel and my canvas and paints and everything. And I looked over across the class and there was Martina. Hmm. <laughs> and I, I said to myself, oh, I've got to introduce myself, but how should I handle this? And um, after the class, this guy I knew who was a friend of mine, who was very sort of effete, walked up to Tina and said, oh, obviously you have no idea what you're doing. And I could see Tina look kind of crestfallen, but not completely. Uh, but I used that as an opportunity to walk over and say, please excuse my friend. Obviously he doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, my name is Chris. She said, my name is Tina. And, and that was when we met. And of course, she already had a boyfriend. I mean, of course she did. And I already had a girlfriend. You had a girlfriend, yeah. Right. A very lovely girl, by the way. But I, I, uh, we, we became friends, uh, you know, at, and she was very, very fond of Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, and I, Tina was, and I thought, all right, she's cool. She digs Smokey <laughs> Robinson. That's the litmus test. Yeah. One, one of the questions. That, yeah. uh, uh, so we asked a, a couple of uh, uh, programmers to, to submit questions and also some listeners to WPKN. Again, I want to welcome everyone that's tuned in on WPKN streaming anywhere in the world right now, 89.5 FM. Uh, but uh, Tom, one of our listeners in Monroe, Connecticut, wanted to know about, you, you had mentioned that you, uh, Gene Krupa was an early influence on you as a drummer. Yep. And as part of a, uh, some sort of a, uh, maybe it was like a, your senior thesis, you had painted a very large portrait of him. And so Tom wanted to know, is there a photo of that online anywhere? I, I wish there were, you know, I, I do have a photo of it, a slide. It's not online, mm -hmm. but um, I gave it to Tina's brother who had been, who had allowed us to live in his loft for many months. I gave it to him as a present. He, he liked the painting, but then when he moved to Paris to work with I.M. Pei on the Louvre, um, he was an architect. Uh, 
somehow the somehow the the painting disappeared. Mm. I don't know. He put his stuff in storage, and we never saw it again. I paint. The reason I named it was an abstract painting, uh, color field type painting, and the reason I named it Gene Krupa was because as I was sort of putting the finishing touches on it, and I was listening to the radio, they said that Gene Krupa had died. Mm. And I, I had a great deal of respect for him, uh, not only as a drummer, but also as, as a pretty good, great human being, I think. Mm. And so I, I named the painting Gene Krupa. Okay. Cool. Well, let's um, talk a bit about the beginning of Talking Heads. I think we've got uh, some of your youth out of the way and, and some of the, the uh, uh, school school days but uh let's talk a little bit about origin stories and uh, i'm sure that many of you here uh, don't know all the details about how everybody came together uh, in the band uh, i do know from reading the book that you started the band yeah and i think that people need to know that uh that chris france started the band and and then of course well Maybe you could talk about when you asked Tina to join and David Byrne, how he came into the Talking Heads circle, uh -huh. and also sure. Jerry Harrison. Well, well, at RISD in Providence, Rhode Island, um, we we had we had a lot of parties, but we didn't have any live music at these parties, and I I thought. I should, I should start a band, you know, to play like all the kids' favorite cover songs and, uh, you know, entertain our friends. And so uh, I, it was just a, an idea. And I had, I had recently uh, become even closer to Tina when uh, she broke up with her boyfriend and I had also... Actually, my girlfriend kind of broke up with me. <laughs> she liked older guys at that point. Uh, so anyway, uh, Tina and I uh, were at a friend's house, and somebody had a little, I had never tried this before, somebody had a little, like, match head of very high-quality cocaine and said, would you like to try it? And Tina and I tried it, and we were like, whoa, <laughs> this is great. And of course, we, we had a lot of energy. And when, when the party was over, we just kept walking around Providence at night. And I kind of was unloading my ambitions and my dreams and stuff. And I, I said to Tina, you know, I want to start a band, and I think you should be in it because you're the best dancer I've ever danced with. You have the best sense of rhythm. It doesn't matter what instrument you play. I know you'd be good at it. Mm. And I knew that she had played folk guitar and also flute. And she could read music, which I, I couldn't really do very well. Um, I, I, I knew how to do that at one time, but I'd kind of forgotten. <laughs> and... Um, she said, oh, no, no, Chris, rock and roll is a, is a guy thing. It's like a boys club. But I'll be very supportive of you in whatever you try to do. So I said, oh, okay. Uh, around the same time, a, a, 
a friend of mine came to me and he, knowing I played drums and he said, Chris, I've, I've made this student film. He was in the film department. I made this student film about my girlfriend getting run over by a car. <laughs> and I need some really cacophonous uh, kind of crazy music to crescendo up and then, and then fade out for the, for the final scene when, when she gets hit by the car. And I said, oh, yeah, I could do that. And um, uh, I said, meet me at Tina's apartment. This is where I was keeping my drums. Tina let me keep my drums in her apartment because my, my own neighbors wouldn't put up with it. So uh, he said, great. And I'm going to bring a friend who plays guitar. I said, great. And it, uh, so on the, at the appointed hour, on the appointed day, Mark came uh, to Tina's apartment, which was a carriage house, and uh, said, uh, I'd like to introduce you to my friend who plays guitar. His name is David Byrne. And I said, great. Hi, David. And uh, we did that thing where we make a lot of cacophonous noise and crescendos up and then fades out. And I think we got it in one take, or at least Mark was happy with what we, what we had done. He recorded it on his Nagra, you know, and, um, after that, David said, you know, uh, I can play other things than, than that type of noise. And I said, Oh, cool. I was thinking of starting a band. Would you like to be in it? And, and he said, I guess so. <laughs> and, and so uh, we started a band uh, called The Artistics, and we, we played at student parties, and once in a while we would play in the student tap room, <clears throat> and uh, once we played outdoors in front of the RISD Museum on a, on a beautiful spring day. Uh, and, uh, well, long story short, uh, we hit it off very well musically, David and I. The other guys in the band were great too, but they were younger than us. Uh, we were seniors at the time. And um, uh, we, we all decided we would move to New York. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was, uh, I guess, what, about 1974? That was 1974. Yeah. I moved in October of 74. And, uh, and and you moved down at, with you and Tina and also David, right? Well, David had already moved to New York ahead of us. Okay. And um, but when I got there, I found a loft, and I, I still had this idea of starting a, another mm -hmm. band, which would end up being Talking Heads. And and David said, Yeah, okay, I guess so. <laughs> and uh, Tina was still reluctant, but she had a car. She said, I'll be your driver. Mm. And uh, it was a Plymouth Valiant. We could fit the whole band and all the gear in the Plymouth Valiant in those days. Mm. And um, uh, so, and this, this was the loft that was uh, in the Bowery section uh, on Christie Street, if anyone knows. Uh, what that area used to look like back in the 70s. It was not gentrified the way it is now, of course. 
Uh, I don't know if you had running water or... We had uh, running water, but we didn't have hot water. Okay. <laughs> so, a bit problematic at times. Yeah. So. Uh, but I know that at one point you were all, all three of you were living in that loft or... Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you I, were rehearsing I, and writing songs, early songs and... Yes. And also going to a variety of jobs because obviously you were not yeah. getting supported uh, just by a few gigs here and there. But talk about, I, I found the jobs to be kind of <coughs> intriguing, you know, what all, all of you guys were doing in New York. Well, I, I got a job at a place called Design Research, which is a sold, well, first of all, all three of us had jobs on 57th Street. Mm. So we would take the subway up together uptown in the mornings. And uh, I, I worked at Design Research, which was uh, featured European furniture and housewares and Marameco clothing. Uh, very kind of uh, beautiful things. Mm. And our, our customers were people like Kurt Vonnegut was in there a lot, uh, Jackie O came in a lot to mm -hmm. buy like wedding presents and things. Um, Catherine Deneuve, when she was in town, would come in. And then, of course, there was John and Yoko. Mm, they would say, come in yeah. I and think, buy white stuff. Yeah, <laughs> It had to be white. So this was high-end furniture. And, and uh, Tina was also involved with something that was- Tina was working with Henry Bendel's. Fairly Bendel's, expensive items. Henry yeah. Bendel's just down 57th Street when it, when it was still on 57th Street. Yeah. And she started off in the potpourri section. And then she quickly moved, moved to stationery, which she liked a lot. And then they moved her to shoes, which she didn't like so much because she found that women would come in and insist that they, they were like two sizes smaller oh, than yeah. they actually <laughs> okay. were. She didn't like that so much. Yeah. But she got to sell shoes to like Bette Midler and Cher yeah. and people like that. Right. Yeah. So David was uh, east side or west side on 57th Street? Where, where, what was he up to? Da David was working in an ad agency running the stat machine, mm. like making copies. <laughs> that was his job. But it came in handy because he was able to uh, make lots of copies of Talking Heads posters yeah. when we, when we right. finally got our first mm -hmm. show. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the... Um, you know, CBGB, it's obviously obligatory because a lot of things were, were happening there. And uh, if you could talk a bit about the impact of uh, CBGB and the owner, Hillary, Hilly Crystal, uh, yeah. early on you wrote in the book of meeting Debbie Harry, the band television, Patti Smith, and then you write a kind of a humorous uh, piece about how you auditioned with the band yeah. to open for the Ramones, uh, maybe you could elaborate and talk a bit about just how important CBGB was to Talking Heads, but beyond that also just as a kind of a cultural uh, scene shifter and a, a massive you know, talent incubator yes. in New York. It was like an incubator. Uh, the great thing about CBGBs, it, well, Hilly was brilliant and that if you had ever played at CBGBs, the next time you came, you didn't have to pay. So, so it became like a hangout for all the, all the downtown musicians. 
Most of them live downtown, not, not all. But uh, I mean, some, some of the bands lived in New Jersey or God forbid the Upper West Side. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> um, so, so it was a place for people to congregate, but also the audiences were very small. In, in the early days, like if we had 30 people, we thought we were having a really good mm. night. And sometimes there were only 10, you know, and they would be our friends. So if you messed up, if you were having an off night or, or a particular song didn't go over so well, it wasn't so bad because not that many people saw it or mm. heard it. Mm. Mm. Unlike today, when people put things on the internet and everybody can hear it and everybody can see, oh, that outfit is terrible. <laughs> so, well, you passed the audition. So there was that. Yeah. But, but also, uh, there was a real, uh, I, I'm not saying there was no jealousy or no uh, kind of uh, uh, bad vibes mm. ever. Sometimes there were. But, but for the most part, uh, the bands were very supportive of each other, you know, with the exception of Johnny Ramone. Yes, yes. It, uh, and, you, and, have that, uh, you have that great quote about... Uh, and frankly, sometimes Patti Smith was not very supportive no. of other bands. Like, mm. like, she didn't have time to say hello. Or, or in the case of Debbie Harry, she completely dismissed her as being like, ah, she's just a brick girl you know <laughs> so uh there was that but most of the time uh, the bands were were supportive of each other and and nine times out of ten uh they would come to see us when we played and we would go to see them when they played right, right. uh the quote that i i liked when you were auditioning from Johnny, uh, the Johnny Ramone, who seemed to be, you know, forever sulking, you know, just, yeah. if not worse. Yeah. Uh, he, he said, uh, yeah, about the talking heads, yeah, they suck. So they can open for us. They'll, they'll, they'll just make us look better. Yeah. <laughs> so, that was his theory. He was, he, he, uh, he was quite a, quite a character in your, in your, in your yeah. book. Uh, a couple of related questions that were posed by, um, uh, a few listeners on WPKN. One was uh, during your CBGB days, which bands did you think would definitely break through and make it big, like Talking Heads, but perhaps didn't? Were there any of those bands that just, uh, you know, you were a little surprised about? Yeah, there, 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 uh, there was a band called The Mumps, which featured Lance Loud, uh, who had been. He was kind of famous from being in the, the TV show An American Family, which may have been the, f the first reality TV show. And uh, he came out of the closet on the show. And uh, at this point in, in 1974, he was working for Andy Warhol uh, at Interview Magazine. Uh, Lance was a, a very charismatic and kind of super high energy person. And he had an excellent band, the other guys in the mumps, one of whom went on to work with the lounge lizards and the um, uh, Klaus Nomi. Mm. He, uh, I'm talking about a, a kid named Christian Hoffman, 
who lives in L.A. now, uh, but he uh, he wrote those songs for Klaus Nomi that became kind of well-known, and then, of course, Klaus ripped him off and didn't pay him. <laughs> but um, I would say the mumps comes to, springs to mind okay. right away. Good. Well, uh, we're, we're running a little short on time, so we're going to try to okay. fast forward a little bit and I'm going to cut out some, some sections, but I, I, the first European tour with the Ramones, we have to talk about, about that. That was the spring of 1977. One of my favorite chapters in the, in the book, laugh out loud, funny, uh, passages. Uh, I, I mean, there could not have been two bands that were sitting on the same bus that would be so diametrically, you know, different from each other, like water and oil. Yeah. Uh, and, so maybe, uh, I mean, you were bouncing around Paris and Amsterdam and Brussels and uh, there's, there's, there's one, maybe talk a little bit about some of the crazy stories with, with the Ramones. Maybe the, uh, I like the Carbana story, but also Stonehenge comes to mind uh, as well. Oh, well, yes. And just impressions of traveling with them. <laughs> the... Uh... Uh, well, the Carbona story is uh, we were in actually in Marseille. We had this. It was like a, a Brigitte Bardot movie. We were we were in the old port of Marseille, and that's where our hotel was. And we you could have bouillabaisse, and it was so great. And um, we had we did have bouillabaisse with Didi Ramon. And afterwards, we went up to our hotel room and. The record company in Europe, Phonogram Records, which distributed Sire, had given us these little travel kits, touring kits, and it had like Ferne Branca and aspirin and uh, Band-Aids and, and uh, shaving cream. And one of the things that was in it was a, a, a little bottle of Carbona, which I, I, I was like, what's this? <laughs> Didi said, are you going to be using that Carbona? And I said, no, Didi, you can have it. It's a spot remover. And, and, then, and then on the, the next album, next Ramones album, there was a song called Carbona Not Glue. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I like to think that I, I helped inspire that song. Yeah, right. <laughs> And, and, and what was the other? Well, just, oh, oh, I mean, Stonehenge. There was some, yeah, Stonehenge. Stonehenge. So we got to England, and it was springtime. It was May, and uh, a beautiful spring day, and we were driving down to uh, Devon from, from London. And the tour manager said, actually, Tina said to the tour manager, are we going to go by Stonehenge? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, we are. In fact, I'll tell the driver we'd like to stop there. And so he did. As we, as we pass, as we approach Stonehenge, everybody goes, oh, my God, it's Stonehenge. And, and Johnny Ramone said, it's just a bunch of old fucking rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he didn't want the bus to stop. But Dee Dee stood up and said, no, Johnny, I want to stop. I want to see Stonehenge. <laughs> and Tina said, yes, and I want to see Stonehenge. And so we, we stopped and we all walked around. In those days, there was no fence. This was 1977. 
and there was no fence around uh, Stonehenge. Then you mm. could just walk right up and touch the rocks. And uh, Johnny stayed on the bus. Yeah. Well, you, you, you know, you talk about a lot of um, really great concert venues that you played in your book. And one of the highlights uh, certainly seemed to be at the Roundhouse yeah. in, in London. You were uh, with the Ramones, the Saints, and it was the Queen's Jubilee. I think it was, so this is June 1977. And you played uh, two sold-out shows to 3,300 people each night. Yeah. And a lot of people talk about that as being kind of a, a changing, a turning point in their lives in terms of like with the new experience of punk and new wave type yeah. of music. Yeah. The, um, well, in the audience that night were the members of The Clash, all the members of the Sex Pistols, the Slits, the Damned, mm. All, uh, Ian Dury, yeah. I mean, and the Blockheads. Right. So real royal. <laughs> all there, all yeah. those bands were in the audience, and we could see them. We could look out and, you know, oh, my God, they're Sid Vicious. And, uh, but they couldn't have seen a better show, really. I, I mean, I, I, I'm very proud of the fact that we sounded great, and so did the Ramones. And the Saints, were all, who were from Australia, were also great. Mm. And it was a big night for, for our record label, Sire Records. Every, all three bands were signed to Sire. And Seymour Stein, yeah. our, our, who signed us, our record company president, was in the audience. A big night for mm. him. And uh, the, the contrast between Talking Heads and then the Ramones was, was super cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, we, the bands were so different and sounded so different, yet we, we, we shared something, some kind of artistic, like, some kind of artistic vision that was, was not reminiscent so much of the bands of, of the 60s. No. Uh, or especially the bands of the early 70s. It was like a new thing. Mm. And, uh, and I know that you have a lot of other favorites, but unfortunately, we're really uh, short on time. Oh, so, no. you know, because we're also on radio time, but uh, perhaps somebody has a question that they would like to ask uh, Chris. And I know there are probably a couple of you, so. <coughs> Hi, Chris. Hi. Hello. You can hear me. Yeah, there, there you go. go. I saw you in the late 70s at the Longhorn in Minneapolis, and you were playing an orange Rogers drum kit that sounded wonderful. Whatever happened to that kit? I still have it. It's in my garage. <laughs> awesome. And if I may, just one other quick question. I've always been attracted to your drumming style because of how spare it is. Where did that come from? Well, I... You know, uh, I always admired the sort of backbeat drummers, the, the uh, drummers that were maybe less less flashy, but kept a kept a good and like throbbing kind of groove. And um, uh, people like Booker T, um, Booker T and the MGs, uh, um, their drummer. Um, oh God, gosh, what's his name? <laughs> 
Al Jackson Jr., thank you. And Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones, as opposed to, say, Keith Moon. Uh, were, was, that, was, that was how I felt when I played the drums, was that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, minimal type of groove, but strong. And uh, then, then I saw Tommy Ramone play, and Tommy Ramone wasn't even really a drummer. He, he was a guitar player, but he played drums because nobody else would. Mm -hmm. And uh, he really pared it down to like the, like the minimal painters and sculptors at that time did, like he <clears throat> pared everything down to its essence. And uh, when I saw Tommy play like that, I thought, oh yeah, mm. I can dig that. And, um, and so I, I stripped my own playing back even further <clears throat> at that point. Um, I just want to announce that uh, we're going to have to close the radio broadcast and maybe we'll take a question after that. But thank you all listening uh, online and here in the beautiful Westport Library for VersoFest. Thank you, Chris France, for providing so much great, great music and also to Tina Weymouth, his partner in life. Couldn't have done it without thank, the two thank of Thank you, so, Steve. Thank you. Thank you all. Probably Support for WPKN comes from Oka Westport presenting on Saturday, April 16th at 7 p.m., The Figs, returning for an encore performance of their dance-inducing, fast-paced pop rock, complete with catchy hooks and hip-shaking bass lines. Their performance will include a tribute to punk in support of the current Punk is Coming exhibition at Mocha Westport. More information and tickets for in-person attendance or live streaming available at mochawestport.org. Your radio station, WPKN, wants to know what you think about listening to the radio. You can find a short survey on our website or Facebook page, and if you've had interactions with WPKN over the years, you'll find the survey in your mailbox. We'll be asking you to tell us about the kinds of programming you like, how much you listen to radio in general, and WPKN in particular, and a few other things like how you feel about fundraising. This is all about getting to know you a little bit better, which would be better for us, Better for you and better for the radio station we all care about, WPKN. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Take a minute to answer the WPKN listener survey. Join WPKN and Park City Music Hall on Sunday, April 10th for a lively evening of music from two great bands, The Swamp Hogs and Hector Gannett. Pandemic born in the bayous of Bridgeport, the Swamp Hogs showcase an experimental inclination towards funk, rock, and feral psychedelia. Joining the Hogs from across the pond are the next big act to come out of North Shields. 
Hector Gannon, brought stateside thanks to friends of WPKN, Jermaine Valentine, and the late founder of The Animals, Hilton Valentine. Don't miss his special night at Black Rock's premier live music venue. Tickets and more information at parkcitymusichall.com. The WPKN Environmental Film Series starts up once again on April 13th at 7 p.m. at the Bijou Theater in downtown Bridgeport. Our first film this season is The Human Element, a story about how renowned photographer James Ballag uses his camera to reveal how environmental change is affecting the lives of everyday Americans. There are four elements, fire, water, air, and earth. And then the most disruptive element, the human element. Screening at the Bijou Wednesday the 13th at 7 p.m. Sponsored by our friends at Save the Sound. Hazel Khan inviting you to tune into Tidings on Wednesday. Author and journalist Ramzi Baroud talk about the new world order reflected in Russia's war on Ukraine and what it signifies about the relationship between Russia, China and the United States. Wednesday, 6.30 a.m. and 8 p.m. Please join us if you can. Thank you. Hi, I am Fernando Morales, Executive Director of Southwestern Area Health Education Center in Shelton, Connecticut. Our goal is to improve health equity in our communities by assisting in creating an inclusive and accessible health care system. In the past two years, COVID-19 has impacted our lives in so many ways. And while it may seem the worst is behind us, we still have a long way to go. There are few easy ways to stay safe. Wash your hands frequently and wear a mask. If you are experiencing any COVID-19 symptoms, such as fever, dry cough, loss of smell or taste, please stay quarantined and get tested. Stay quarantined and get tested. Don't hesitate to have a conversation with your healthcare professional to get the answers that you need to make the best decisions for yourself. This is the best way to protect yourself, friends, loved ones, and your community. The The FDA has approved multiple vaccines to help protect yourself and your community from the spread of COVID-19. If you have any questions about the vaccine or need help finding where to get vaccinated, we are here to help you. The Southwestern Area Health Education Center in Shelton is available to answer your questions at at 203-372-5503. That's 203-372-5503. We want to help. We want to make a difference. Together, Together we, we can, can crush COVID. COVID. Hello, I'm Ed Hamill, a.k.a. Hamill on Trial, and this is WPKN Bridgeport at 89.5 FN and online at WPKN.org.